We are live for another unannounced live stream. I have to speak a little low tonight because it is late and we have some guests and uh, I don't want to disturb them. So FYI, for those who are wondering, John, why do you sound like you have an NPR voice? That's why I sound like I have an NPR voice right now. Um, it's been a long day for me. I've, I had a great weekend, by the way. I hope everyone else had a great weekend. Uh, it was uh, Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, as many in my church call it. And uh, and uh, got to go be with the family afterward, but um, it was a long day. We had our uh, the sunrise service, which I did not go to. It would have been a longer day if I did that. And then there was a uh, Easter morning, a Resurrection Sunday morning breakfast. Did that and uh, special music and flowers and um, and then uh, the service. And uh, by the way, uh, someone. Uh, who listens to this podcast came. They actually traveled a distance to come to the service, which was quite a, a treat to be able to talk to someone who's uh, one of the listeners out there. And uh, so we had a great time and and then went to the, the family's house and, you know, then get back to late in the evening. So that's, I guess that's a typical holiday day, but, uh, but I'm exhausted, not because of that, but because it's tax week. And because it is tax week, uh, I, in my, <laughs> I did start last week. I did start on my filing, but today was, and yesterday really were, were like two full days spent, uh, just figuring out taxes and my taxes have become so complicated. And I wonder, like, I, I wondered yesterday, why do I keep thinking about being off the grid somewhere out West working as a cowboy or something? Oh, that might be why <laughs> it dawned on me. I'm like, why do I keep having this thought? Uh, because uh, the, the taxes are so complicated and such a headache. That's why. I, I, it's just, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. Um, it could be so much easier. It, it's, I'm wondering if we have the most complicated tax code in the entire world. We must. I just can't conceive of it ever being any more complicated than it is. But anyway, I've been working on that. And uh, and this week's just, it, it's a it's a busy week. So that, all that to say, what I'm trying to do is fit in some podcasts kind of in between things. Um, and I want to give you a little bit of an update. Tomorrow, I'm actually going to be meeting with Kevin Gutzman at Western Connecticut State University, interviewing him for the 1607 Project. I'm meeting with a culinary chef. Inter I know, a culinary chef, right? Interviewing him for the 1607 Project. We're going to talk about colonial food. And, uh, and then later this week, I'm going to be traveling in Georgia and I will be meeting a number of people, including, now I know only a few of you might know who this is, but including Paul Godfrey. Some of you heard that name and you know exactly who I'm talking about. Uh, someone I respect a lot, I admire, uh, at least when it comes to political social commentary and uh, looking forward to that. So lots going on. Truth. Oh, by the way, I need to show everyone this truth script working on that, working on like five things at the same time, working on my, working on a book, working on truth script, working on all kinds of things. So uh, th this introduction is for those who care about all these personal things. We're going to get to some meat in a moment, but let me, let me see if I can pull this up and show you. So that's what it looks like. <laughs> Not much there right now, but you can see the icon. It's, I think we're going to stick with this. Uh, one of the, the patrons actually made this, which is awesome. I, I love it. And uh, we're not sure if we'll keep the font quite yet, but um, it's going to look something like this. And that's the mission. Truth Scripts, uh, Scripts' mission, I can say it, is to encourage Christians to be transformed by the renewing of their minds instead of conform to the world coming soon. So uh, that is in the works right now uh, as we speak, which is awesome. 
So just wanted to thank everyone who's been praying for that. Um, th- this is the, I guess, the good TGC alternative. It, we want to do something similar to the Gospel Coalition because I think that the Gospel Coalition actually has done a good job on a few things. I'm not saying all their content is good, but I'm saying they understood a formula. They understood simple articles, short articles for common people, not anything that's too long, too academic. And what we have on the conservative, if you want to call it side theologically, is we have a lot of uh, discernment style blogs and ministries, and, and we need those, but that's what we have. And then we ha- also have exegetical type ministries. They're not really focused on like they're not going to give you a movie review or they're not going to give you information on what's current. They're they're going to focus exclusively on, I'm thinking of like Grace to You, Ligonier Ministries, maybe G3. They're going to focus on more in interpreting scripture, founders ministries. And we need those those outlets as well. But there's no one that I can tell. And I know some people have sent me a few websites that they said, isn't this kind of like it, John? And it's not. <laughs> I haven't seen one that is doing what the Gospel Coalition is doing. And uh, so anyway, that's that's what Truth Script is uh, about. And uh, we already have a board picked. We, we have the officers picked where we filed for 501c3 status. That's all going forward. So exciting stuff. All right. So the, the stuff I wanted to talk about tonight is related to um, an ongoing conversation that's happening right now on Twitter. And I've been getting these notifications. Uh, this is one of the things. This, there's been a bunch of things, but this is one of the things I've been getting a lot of notifications about. And, and I haven't actually, I, I, I think I understand where this article is going, but we're going to read it together. I haven't read it yet because of everything I've been doing. Um, and it's at the American Reformer, if you want to pull it up, if you're streaming live. And it's uh, by Megan Basham. And it's called Mr. Smith Goes to the Convention, meaning the Southern Baptist Convention. So here it is. And we can read this together. And then I'm going to show you that the president of the Southern Baptist Convention has already reacted within, I don't know, three hours of this article being posted, because I think it dropped this afternoon. Here's the title, um, the subtitle, Female Pastors, LGBTQ, and the Future of the SBC. In May of 2022, Mike Law, pastor of Arlington Baptist Church in Virginia, sent an email to the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. As the only full-time member of a church of about 100, he had never had an interaction with his national leadership before, so he began with a chipper greeting introducing himself and his congregation, followed by a straightforward question. Is a church that has a woman serving as pastor deemed to be in friendly cooperation with the SBC? Home to some 47,000 churches and 13 million members, the SBC's status as the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. is due in large part to its loose structure. Rather than a top-down hierarchy, it's more of a casual association of churches who agree on doctrine and pool their money to fund missions, seminaries, and various charitable endeavors. So you can tell all this background is giving information to probably conservative readers politically who aren't initiated into SBC politics. Most of you listening probably are, so I'm going to skip over this. Though its contributions may have been small, Arlington Baptist was nonetheless a contributor in good standing, and its pastor was inquiring whether uh, since Article 6 of the denomination Statement of Faith asserts that the office of pastor is limited to men, that is a quote, (laughs) based on uh, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, a church could remain in the club if it violated this doctrine. 
Law explained that his understanding was that a church with a woman pastor would not qualify for what the SBC calls friendly cooperation because that requires a faith and practice that closely identifies with the Baptist faith and message. The SBC's name for their statement of faith. Churches that affirm homosexual behavior um, have been disfellowshipped. Why would this point of doctrine be any different? He finished by thanking the committee for its service and said he looked forward to their answer, and he never got one. Now, I want to say, I think it's referenced later in this particular article. I did watch about half of Mike Law's video. It's only like 15 minutes long, and it's well done. And it's it's a video anyone could have made. I mean, it's just with a webcam and a little PowerPoint presentation. But he really is aggressive. He's not. He, he doesn't do the winsome thing where he's trying to just go along to get along, give the benefit of the doubt. He is sounding the alarm in this particular video. And he also uh, cites some hard facts. Like he, he says that he did a very uh, scaled down study. It didn't, it wasn't involved. It wasn't comprehensive. And he found 120 female pastors, according to him, 120 in the Southern Baptist convention in good standing in churches that are in good standing. I know I pointed out last week that there was that, uh, initiative. Um, I don't know what you would call it. I guess, a, I guess initiative is the best word I can come up with for it, but that was supporting female pastors. And I just went, I probably spent maybe half an hour, not even 20 minutes, just going through a few churches on this list of, of pastors who had signed a statement, uh, petition, I guess would be a better word, a petition to allow female pastors and um, it wasn't specifically about the Southern Baptist, but just in general. And I started coming up with all these pastors, women pastors, who are in good standing in SBC churches. I went to the SBC website and poof, there it is. Uh, places like Raleigh, North Carolina, where there's an SBC seminary right there. Right down the road from the seminary, there were, were at least two churches that have women pastors on the staff and they call them pastors. And I, I pointed this out um, last week and I just said, I wonder how widespread this is. Well, here's the article. It's very widespread, apparently. All right. So um, the response law received from the vice president of communications, Jonathan Howe, explained that determinations of friendly cooperation are made by the credentials committee, not the executive committee. So if he wanted to report a church for having a woman pastor, that was where he should go. Law wrote back, apologizing for not being clear the first time. He knew where churches could be reported, but was only asking about the general principle. Did the committee agree with the Baptist faith and message position on women in the pastorate, and did that belief guide their decisions? Howe replied that he could not speak for the credentials committee and did not think the credentials committee was likely to speak for the credentials committee either. They speak through their actions throughout the year, he said. He then pointed law to a portal where he could report a church for review. Now this, you'll recognize this as your standard ring around the rosy. <laughs> this is your double speak that you get when you, uh, you know, typically are trying to get a straight answer in, in the corporate world or something, and you're sent to this department and then to that department, and no one wants to take responsibility. Same thing in, in an organization like the Southern Baptist Convention. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. To law, the confusion lay in the fact that the committee had not been speaking through their actions. In just a five-mile radius of Arlington Baptist, I had noticed five other SBC churches that had female pastors on staff, he tells me. 
Further, far from exhaustive research turned up 170 more. Colleagues shared that they had 170. Just think about that for a moment. 170. Colleagues shared, like, I just... The, the standard argument that I keep hearing from, I've heard for years from people on the other side of the aisle, because it is an aisle now, it's more of a chasm in the Southern Baptist Convention is, yeah, you know, there's a few churches here or there that have female pastors. And it's it's because um, a lot of them are pre-conservative resurgence uh, days and, and they just haven't been rooted out or they haven't noticed. It's not, it's because of ignorance. It's not because of willful neglect or anything like that. And 170, it, it's kind of hard to make that case anymore. If, and credit to Mike Law, he did the digging and he was able to turn up all these results. Colleagues shared that when they had reported churches in their areas for the same issues, the credentials committee uh, took no action. Then there were the whispers that various SBC leaders themselves attended churches where women act as pastors. In fact, one blog cited Howe's wife as one of them. Oh, man. That's, uh, that's awkward. Uh, in short, it seemed to law it would be helpful if the committee could be prevailed upon to speak through other means, namely words. But while Law's next email to senior members of the Credentials Committee produced no better results, their response did clarify why this his query was being met with stonewalling and unasked for directions on how to report churches. I believe your question is in reference to Saddleback Church, the registration secretary informed him. Because of this, he said the committee would be unable to give a response. With 23,000 members across, for those who don't know, Saddleback Church, that's where Rick Warren pastors or did pastor and that's where um women they have ordained women pastors there and they they call them pastors and uh this was a big issue last year at the southern baptist annual meeting it will be a big issue at this particular annual meeting coming up with 23,000 members spread across 14 campuses not to mention extension groups around the world that attend services online saddleback could hardly provide a greater contrast to arlington baptist where Law himself stuffs sermon outlines into Sunday's bulletins and makes the spaghetti for Wednesday night Bible study. So you can you can see Megan is uh, uh, trying to, as the title suggests, show that Mike Law is, he's the little guy in all this. He is the Mr. Smith uh, who is going to Washington and just cares about the church. So um, let's see, we got a, a bunch of people streaming now for this unannounced live stream. Um, one comment I'll just focus on before we uh, keep going here uh, from Truddle. It's an interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting icon you have there, Truddle, for your profile. Um, a bureaucracy in is an institution that exercises enormous power over you, but with no locus of responsibility. That's a that's a great quote. Bureaucracy is how this all gets enabled. Yep, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So, um, yeah, let's keep going with this. The megachurch's founding pastor, Rick Warren, uh, author of Purpose Driven Life, let's see, we, we know this, um, he's he's on the left. <laughs> Francis Collins, World Economic Forum, blah, blah, blah. All right. Uh, in 2021, Warren had defiled, defiled, <laughs> he did defile, but he defied the Baptist faith and message by ordaining three women. Uh, so we just talked about this. 
Um, all of this conjecture was immaterial to law, however, as he hadn't been thinking of Saddleback at all. Okay, so so here's the thing. Saddleback's getting all the press. And maybe it's because, you know, they're so big and Rick Warren's there. And, uh, and maybe that's by design to some extent is what I'm saying. Maybe that's Mike Law is saying, look, yeah, I got 170 churches here. Saddleback's only one of them. And for Saddleback to get all the attention means, um, I, I guess there's a few things. I, I, one, one possibility here is you get rid of Saddleback, or at least you, you say that they're no longer in good standing and you say, and you make the problem go away in a high profile case. And then women pastors continue to ascend the ranks in the SBC, or at least they enter the pastorate, they increase in numbers. Um, and, uh, and, and you can always point to that example of when we disfellowshipped uh, or, yeah, basically disfellowshipped Saddleback Church. So, so it gives a, a shield uh, for the those on the left who want to continue this um, drift, if you will. So that's one thing. That's one way um, that w- one, I guess, idea of, of what might be going on. I'm not saying that is going on, but that could be uh, what's going on. Um, it could also be that, well, I don't want to, uh, there, there's some other possibilities, but let's keep going with the article. I don't want to interrupt myself too much here. Um, so Mike Law felt like clarity was in order. Thus a month after his initial letter to the executive committee, he determined to attend the SBC's national meeting and propose a constitutional amendment. It would require Southern Baptist churches to conform to the Baptist faith and message on the question of women in the pastorate, just as they were required to do on issues of sexuality. Delegates, known as messengers to the annual convention, would have the opportunity to consider the question on biblical merit free from the wrangling over famous personalities like Rick Warren. But then, less than two weeks before the convention, Warren announced he was retiring and named as his replacement a husband and wife team. Though law would not know for it for some time, Warren's decision would become the main obstacle to his hope of giving the SBC a chance to make a clear-cut up or down choice. The first day of the convention started at 8 a.m. Law arrived at 7.45, stationing himself near one of the 10 microphones. So this is back in the last annual meeting in June. Um, Though he had pre-submitted his amendment by email the night before, there were no guarantees he would actually be granted an opportunity to make a motion as the process is by all accounts harrowing. There's only two 20-minute periods when you can make motions and long lines form for the mics. Okay, this is all SBC stuff to explain to people who are outside the SBC. And uh, I think most who are listening to this podcast probably understand a little bit because I've covered it so much of, of how this all works. So law resolved to uh, continue standing near the mic for two and a half hour wait, even after Hal came by and pressed him to sit down. His persistence paid off. He wasn't the first to make a motion as he'd hoped, but he did get his proposal in early and it was quickly seconded. At that point, the committee on the order of business would have scheduled his amendment for an immediate vote. Instead, they sent it to the executive committee who would then decide whether to bring it forward at the next convention in the summer of 2023. At that moment, Law had a choice to make. He could have pulled the amendment out of the committee to force a vote on the floor. And in fact, that morning friends had nudged him to do so but senior leaders of the SBCs persuaded him to be patient and trust the executive committee to shepherd it through a formal vetting process. 
something that would also give him more time to drum up support before the 2023 convention. It was a decision he would later come to regret. And yeah, and, and I understand why he did that, but I think th there's a lot of this going on. I, maybe Mike Law would even say now, I don't know, that the, one of the reasons he regrets this is he didn't realize how bad the rot was in the SBC, how corrupt it really is. And, and this happens all the time. I'm telling you, it's still happening all the time. Um, it, it's no different than in the last few years, people who have also been quote unquote red pilled on the medical establishment or the deep state. Um, you know, Donald Trump Jr., I saw he was in an interview just recently and he was saying he pretty much trusted the FBI and the CIA. Like if they were going to go after someone, at least there was a reason for it. Even if they were wrong, there was something to it. And then he saw the uh, the whole Steele dossier, Russia collusion thing. And he said, you know, that, that, that really showed me you don't really actually need any evidence. And he was totally cynical. He is cynical on the deep state, quote unquote. And I, that's happening. Um, it, there's a lag time a little bit because people tend to trust their church, maybe. <laughs> but people are coming to that same conclusion that, oh, my goodness, the people that are at the helm, the people that are actually steering the boat, it's not that they're ignorant. It's that they actually don't care or they're evil or there, there's some kind of uh, a motivation there. There's some kind of um, a weakness there that is preventing them from taking the actions that they should. And and so it looks like Mike Law came to that conclusion. Trust trusting those guys wasn't wasn't the greatest move, and and that's what he believes now. Uh, that didn't mean the issue of women in the pastorate was tabled for 2022. However, at the 2021 convention, a pastor from Louisiana had submitted a motion calling for. Saddleback to be disfellowshipped over its ordination of the three women. As with Law's motion, the Credentials Committee had decided not to act immediately, but rather take a year to consider the matter. They were now due to deliver a decision. Instead, the committee chairwoman announced that they were recommending the creation of a new committee that would spend another year studying the definition of the word pastor. Everyone remember that? <laughs> I, I remember that from the floor of the convention. And, and actually, to his credit, Al Mohler uh, had a great response to that. And it's like, if we need a committee to study the word pastor, we're in deep trouble. Like, how many other words are we going to form committees to figure out what, what words mean? What is the meaning of is? Right. And, and I mean, um, there, there was a, a friend of mine uh, who um, I don't know if he wants me to say his name, but he, he has another podcast. And he was thinking of doing a documentary similar to Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? And he was going to do What is a Pastor? And uh, he, I think he abandoned that project because it, I don't know why, he was probably just too involved, but it was a good idea in, in a way. It'd just be hard to pull off. Um, but, but it's the same problem. It's, it's the loosening standards, getting rid of definitions, challenging definitions. The war is over definitions and principles. That's what it's over. It's not over these surface level things that I think people in power in these bureaucracies would prefer we argue about. All right. He felt that perhaps the problem was not with the word pastor, but cooperation and suggested the new committee could instead spend a year studying what it meant to cooperate with the statement of faith. Uh, let's see. Who is the he there? I guess. Oh, the committee. Uh, okay. A former chair of the SBC committee. Okay. Um, then it was time for lunch. Okay. I remember this. When the meeting recovered, then President Ed Litton was announcing standard business from the platform when he was summoned to a hushed exchange with the credentials committee chairwoman. 
Upon returning to the podium, he announced there would be a departure from the agenda to hear from a surprise guest. And that was, of course, Rick Warren. So you can see where the deference is. It, it's to the, it, this is exactly James, right? This is what the left always says. Oh, you, those conservatives, you, you give preference to white males. You're, that's what you do in your church. You, you're giving preference to rich people. You're not uh, looking at the poor and the marginalized. And then you see these same, it's the same crowd that runs the convention that uh, loves to scream about those things and, and use them as wedge issues uh, when, when it suits them. Many of them do. And, uh, and here they are, you know, making a decision to allow someone with much authority and prestige and money to come in and monopolize the microphone and uh, with a limited time available for the people who actually, um, who, who are messengers from other places. As the New York Times has highlighted, Saddleback has never used the word Baptist in its name. Uh, indeed, it, okay, so just showing that Rick Warren really, you know, he cooperated with the cooperative program, but he's not, um, he's not exactly your standard Southern Baptist pastor, I suppose. Months later, Warren asked Pew to alter its online transcript. Let's see. Um, Warren says he misspoke. Warren calls widespread mi uh, mis perceptions about Southern Baptists. Um, let's see. So the Baptist standard is this is the, I'm just going to read it, but the Baptist standard observed that he has always downplayed Rick Warren, any affiliation with the SBC because of that. Okay. That misperception. I've heard this so many times and sources who have been in the SBC leadership for decades tell me that before 2022, they can only recall Warren attending the convention a couple of times in 35 years. And I will say this. I have, I've, I've been in those discussions <laughs> and, uh, and there's not a name mentioned here, but I will tell you that, uh, I, I do know names of people who have been at the conventions who say this, that they, they have not seen Rick Warren there. It is very doubtful. Rick Warren has been at these conventions, but he shows up to make a spectacle. Nonetheless, Lytton gave Warren a VIP welcome, permitting him to make a speech that ran six minutes. Uh, and then she goes over what Rick Warren said and how he basically just touted how important and powerful his church is and his work. And uh, when he was done, Lytton thanked him. Um, Law tells me that in the S many SBC conventions he's attended over the years, he has never seen anything like that. That never happens, he said. Uh, okay. He adds that as the question of Saddleback's membership was not being debated, there was no mechanism in Robert's rules of order to platform to recognize Warren. All right. So, so, so she, she focuses on this preference that Rick Warren is given. And, uh, and I want you to ask in your mind why that is come up with your own idea. If you're in the SBC, why, why was Warren afforded so much attention? Does that bother you? Uh, what does this mean on the, issue of women pastors. Why focus on Warren and Saddleback and not the 170 plus churches that have women pastors in them in the SBC? After Warren's speech, the credentials chairwoman announced that the committee had heard the messengers. Yeah. So she's pointing out the hypocrisy here. Uh, still, the seed of questioning definitions was planted. All right. Luckily, unlike James Madison or Thomas Jefferson, the authors responsible for Article 6 of the Southern Baptist Statement of Faith were still alive and able to tell their denomination exactly what they meant. 
So you had Albert Moeller, Chuck Kelly, Richard Land that released a statement clarifying what they wrote. And uh, they said, look, we, we, were, we weren't confused about what a pastor is 20 years ago when we, when we came up with this, when, when we uh, not came up with it, but when we affirmed the Baptist view on women in the pastoral role. As for why so many Southern Baptists were experiencing this newfound confusion, Moeller believed it has less to do with definitions and more to do with cultural pressures. And he's actually, I think, right on that. Okay, I'm going to skip over this a little bit uh, and what Al Moeller says. We talked about it before. So it's a slippery slope, uh, and, and I would agree with that. It is a slippery slope. In early 2020, Saddleback pastor Chris Clark and his wife, Elisa, co-founded a Saddleback chapter of Embracing the Journey, a ministry for parents of LGBTQ children with longtime Saddleback members Doug and Shauna Habel. By the end of 2021, an ETJ newsletter revealed that Saddleback was hosting four ongoing ETJ support groups and one small group. So this um, this quote unquote ministry is happening under Saddleback's, well, it's not even under their nose, it's with their approval, with their funding, with their, uh, with their applause. Um, while ETJ does not specify whether it affirms LGBTQ lifestyles and identifies its founder, Craig McDonald, uh, sits on the board of Renovus, another faith-based nonprofit that does assert that homosexuality and transgenderism are compatible with Christianity. Two organizations are linked, billing itself as a religious nonprofit that exists to reclaim faith for LGBTQ plus Christians. Renovus, oh man, Renovus says its vision is a world where no one has to choose between their faith and sexual orientation or gender identity. Well, that's just great. And this is, I mean, I just, I don't believe for one second, people. I don't believe everyone who can hear my voice right now. That Rick Warren, the pastors at Saddleback Church are ignorant about this stuff. When it, and I know it's a big place. I know some things slip through the cracks, but it's it's the same issue at a place like Saddleback that you have in the Southern Baptist Convention. There's not a concern about it when it is revealed. There's there's not a um, a statement put out. I mean, as far as I know, these this organization is this is these ties are still there. There, there's not been any, any retraction. There's, it, it's, it's approval. At some point, it becomes approval. At what point is that? Probably initially it was approval, but, but it becomes a default option, position, I guess, that we have to hold. We're required to at some point when, uh, when, when it's been years and you have nonsense like this going on. Along with recommending ETJ, Renovus endorses groups like the Reformation Project, GayChurch.com, and Q Christian Fellowship. And the Reformation Project, that's Matthew Vines. That's really gay-affirming. Interestingly, Karen Swallow Pryor, who I think is still a Southern Baptist, even though she is uh, quitting her, her position at Southeastern, she had Matthew Vines write a chapter in uh, her like, second-to-last book called Cultural Engagement. And in the introduction, she says that all the authors, that would include Matthew Vines, are orthodox in their theology. So, I mean, that that's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. It's been happening in a number of different places, not just at Saddleback. 
this is the time to be clear. This is the time to draw firm lines, especially with what's happening with the transgender stuff. It is the time to really, really double down and just, uh, it's not even just doubling down. It's, it's re-educating people. It's, it's making, you know, solidifying. Uh, I mean, think about a warlike scenario. We are in a spiritual war. The troops need to have firm grounding. If they don't have firm grounding, if they don't have the sword of the spirit sharp, they don't have the shield of faith ready to go, they're going to be trounced. They're, they're going to be routed from the battlefield, which is, I'm afraid, what's, what's happening. And you have a number of shepherds out there who should be shooting wolves, protecting sheep, who aren't really shepherds. They are interested in fleecing the sheep as much as the wolves are, because some of them are wolves. On its event page, Renovus lists an upcoming ETJ conference in Atlanta. The lineup includes Saddleback Pastor Chris Clark, uh, Renovus board member Demi Kazi, as well as a number of authors like Matthew Vines. There he is, David Gushy, and Justin Lee. Those guys are way out there. Um, but even if ETJ were so deeply intertwined with openly affirming organizations and influencers, its recommendations and activities should still call Saddleback's discernment in deciding to partner with the organization into serious question. Nowhere in its online materials does ETJ characterize LGBTQ identities or behaviors as sinful. Uh, to Oh, Ryan McLaren, wow. Yeah. The vast majority of its recommended resources are explicitly affirming. I didn't recognize these others. I recognize as Gushy, Vines, and Lee, but uh, John Pavlitz and Colby Martin, I didn't recognize them, but Brian McLaren? Man, he's probably the grandfather of the emergent church he is way out there way outside of orthodoxy he's he's more in like panantheist or pantheist world to return again to those who launched etj at saddleback a close examination of shauna habel and chris clark's activism suggests that fears about the connection between the churches who shift stances on ordaining women and those who shift on lgbtq issues are well founded let me just say this this is totally 100 percent true you start questioning the word of God on a social issue in, in one area, you will question it in another area. It is a slide. You just keep applying the same logic. That's all you do. Uh, th this has been a problem for a long time. And, and it's, I would say it goes back farther than this. Those who accepted the BLM narrative or the CRT narrative tend to get soft on the issue of women pastors or soft complementarianism, they call it, where women can function in the, they can't have the, they can function in the role, but they can't have the title or the position, things like that. They, they, they separate the two. Uh, it, that comes from people who were soft on, uh, on BLM CRT, and, and now they're soft on this. And, and yes, the train just continues, and a number of people have pointed this out for years. Uh, and it, anyway, it, it's a very well-founded, it, it's not a slippery slope fallacy. It is, it is just a, a trend. It's because the, the argument isn't that if you adopt the idea that women can be pastors in the denomination that you will necessarily go for homosexuality or something like that. In fact, I know a number of people in, in other denominations, uh, who, don't do that. Um, I, I think it's it's because of uh, I have my reasons for thinking why I'm going to put that on the shelf for a moment. But um, 
it's it's not it's not a necessarily a necessary um, relationship. It is the, the reason is because it's the same logic that's being applied. It's this undercutting of biblical sufficiency, this confidence in man's wisdom today, the experts, whatever, uh, and uh, casting tradition aside and casting uh, the final authority of God's word aside as anything authoritative. Uh, and, and a lot of people who do this don't think that's what they're doing, but that's what's happening. And, and once that happens, then you you can do anything. You can make the Bible say whatever. It's an origami at that point. So I, I think, yeah, this is totally true. The logic, its that's what it's about. The logic used in the Southern Baptist Convention to justify women pastors, that whisper, it, it is a whisper from the serpent. It is, has, does the Baptist faith and message really say, does God's word really say? That gets applied to other things. And when it does, you, you know, you can ask, I mean, you, you really could, if, if you wanted to say, does God's word really say that Jesus is the only way? I mean, why not? Why why stop with, with something like pastor pastoral roles? Okay, in a Facebook fundraising video for the documentary, 19, um, 1946, which argues that the traditional Christian condemnation of homosexuality traces back to a modern translation error, Habel, who sometimes goes by Habel Morgan, explains how she came to share this belief, describing her attendance at the 2016 Reformation Project Conference with her daughter. Hubble says, I saw gay Christians worshiping God, I saw the Holy Spirit, and I knew that God was in this place. So again, look look what's happening. It's, it's what I saw with my eyes, this. It's not about the authority of the Word of God anymore. What does the Word of God say? It's, it's about what I felt in a moment. It's about my experience. Once that shift happens, Anything's possible. Habel had been clear on Twitter that part of her mission is persuading churches to abandon biblical orthodoxy with respect to sexuality and gender in response to trans-identifying actress Ellen Page's criticism of non-affirming churches. She posted churches like Hillsong that mandate queer celibacy should try a year of solitary themselves. God's end game is love. All right, so so Megan Basham is just there's paragraph after paragraph here, and I'm not going to read all of it. You can go to the um, American Reformer if you want to see more of this, but just getting into the details of what's going on in this uh, with with Saddleback pastors uh, like Chris Clark, uh, what's going on with ministries, the ETJ ministry, and and how these things are. It's the rod is much worse than you thought, is, is what she's saying. The rod is much worse than you thought. Um, finally, the couple Warren selected to lead Saddleback don't seem entirely clear on the Bible stance on homosexuality either. When asked whether a gay married couple, this is the, so this is the current pastor and I guess pastor or pastor's wife, um, when asked whether a gay married couple should carry on with their sinful relationship after coming to Christ, Andy and Stacy Wood answered, I don't know. That's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> they went on to say there is no black and white answer, and they have to ask the couple how they feel the Holy Spirit is leading them. The Woods did not cite any scripture in their response. So this is this is what's going on at Saddleback Church. Um 
As of summer of 2022 faded into fall, Mike Law began to make the case for his constitutional amendment to the wider SBC. In August, he drafted a public letter and began soliciting signatures from SBC pastors to demonstrate to the executive committee that an up or down vote was necessary to bring clarity to the current confusion. Um, many pastors seemed to agree with him, uh, and his petition rapidly gained more than 2,000 signatures, but dozens of pastors replied that they could not sign because their churches, the majority of which had been Southern Baptists since their founding, had already broken with the SBC over perceived leftward drift. Wow. Wow. That's one of the problems with trying to even take back the denomination now. It's the window of opportunity has, as I believe, closed. Um, and if it hasn't, it's closing fast. As a decade, uh, maybe, you know what, I, I, I'm not telling Mike Law what to do. I don't know a lot about Mike Law, but what he's already done, maybe he should be running <laughs> for president of the convention. I mean, he's shown some backbone and leadership, and, and this is a Mr. Smith moment. Like, you think about this, what he's done as a uh, really more of a small-time pastor here. There, there are people, even conservative types in the convention that had the resources to do what he's doing. And they had more of a platform to be able to persuade and they haven't really used it effectively. And you have a guy, and, and this is all it takes, a guy like Mike Law to step in and to, to really lead the charge, to put the work in, to, um, to be persuasive, to say what needs to be said. Maybe, maybe he should run. I'm serious. I don't know. A decade ago, I was in ministry in the United Methodist Church, wrote one of the Melbourne, uh, one from Melbourne, Florida, as a pastor in the SBC. The writing was on the wall, and the Lord graciously called us out of that. The same writing is on the wall now for the SBC. The fact that the committee wanted to take a year to figure out what a pastor is is beyond laughable. A pastor from Burden, Kansas, shared that his congregation had voted to leave when the convention failed to address women in the pastorate in 2022 when given a clear opportunity. Several explained that even more than a drift, a lack of responsiveness from national leadership led to their decision to depart. So th there's examples that are given here. Um, I'm going to skip ahead, try to get you to some significant things. Almost immediately after uh, the South, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary's board uh, made a statement against women pastors in the convention, Bart Barber and the executive committee chairman, Jared Wellman, issued a joint statement about the amendment saying, as far as it lies within our authority to do so, we are committed to letting these questions come before the messengers at the annual meeting. Taking this as a good sign, Law began reaching out individually to members of the executive committee, offering to respond to any questions or concerns they might have. He met with Jonathan Howe and other executive committee staff over Zoom. Um, but before February arrived, Law began to hear from various national leaders suggesting perhaps his amendment itself could be amended. You remember for a moment what happened with Resolution 9, 2019. Remember, it was submitted by a gentleman who um, I don't know that that gentleman is completely on the right or anything, but uh, someone who had concerns about critical race theory. And they took the resolution, the resolutions committee did, and they changed it so much to make it say things it didn't say. I mean, it, was, it, it wasn't really the same resolution. And you have something, I think, possibly similar going on here. So, so Mike Law goes through the proper channels, like, like a good you know, Southern Baptist, and what happens to his amendment, his important amendment? What are they going to do with it now? Um, I could just tell they were kind of casting about for a different option, law tells me. And I was 
clear I did not want that because the whole point was to bring clarity. After his refusal to cede to a lesser option, the reception law received from the committee seemed to turn icy. Their staff informed him he would not be able to submit the list of thousands of SBC pastors who had signed his open letter supporting the amendment. They would also not consider the partial list of SBC churches with female pastors he had created as evidence of the need to act. This is so, this is, this shows you everything, shows you everything. Uh, then came the biggest blow of all on February 7th, two weeks before the executive committee meeting where they were supposed to decide whether to bring his amendment up for a vote. Wellman told law they were pushing the decision off. The committee would wait until their meeting in June, right before the convention. The news did not bode well and law could not understand what had caused the change. Crushed, he emailed the subcommittee chairman asking if he could come to Nashville for February 21st meeting and give a 20-minute PowerPoint. The chairman said he could have five with no PowerPoint. Um, because he would have no access to media and his in-person talk would be short, Law uh, had already invested much more time in the project. Uh, he put together a YouTube video of his presentation, which I referenced earlier and then emailed the link to the executive committee members early on the morning of February 16th. At 11.48 a.m., the subcommittee chairman emailed back simply, thanks, Mike, see you next week. But at some point, so I guess I guess that's to imply that it wasn't probably even watched, but at some point over the course of the day, the chairman evidently decided that Law, who had never been told he shouldn't or couldn't communicate with committee members, had offended by emailing the video. At 5.47 p.m., the chairman replied again, this time with a terse note, quote, you have essentially worked around what is common procedure for having motion makers share with the executive committee. Because of this, the chairman said he would no longer be allowed Q&A time, only the five minutes. <laughs> so they're, they're penalizing him. This is crazy. Then on February 21st, the same day, Law gave his brief and uneventful presentation, the Credentials Committee made a move so unexpected. Not only did the New York Times, People Magazine, and NBC pick up the news, so did the British outlet, The Guardian. The executive committee announced it was disfellowshipping Saddleback. Okay, so, so remember I told you earlier to think about why Saddleback? Why, why does Saddleback get so much of the attention? Uh, it, it, now that we're giving, given the, the wider context of how Mike Laws was treated and what his goal was, could it be that this is this, this is a shield or this is uh, an appeasement strategy. This is a way to deflect. This is something that's being used as a way to um, to show that there's conservative credentials and in, in, in concern when maybe there really isn't because nothing's being clarified necessarily. Uh, the, the root problem is still there and, and can go on. Um. Southern, I, I think this might have been a miscalculations possibly because making Rick Warren mad might might not have been the way to go. But but maybe maybe they're maybe they're talking and they have something worked out. And I, I don't know. Uh, Southern Baptists on both sides of the debate immediately expressed confusion. SBC leadership had drugged their. Yeah, I was confused. Remember that? Our, yeah, that was a, like what a month or two ago. SBC leadership had drugged their feet on the question of Warren's church for nearly two years. Why would they abruptly oust Saddleback so close to the convention? Um, even more sensible, why not put Law's Amendment up for a vote? A tweet from Executive Committee member Mike Keybone immediately followed the announcement, giving the game away. Saddleback now has the option to appeal, which appears likely, Keybone said. 
that appeal would happen on the floor of the annual meeting in New Orleans and be decided by the messengers. This was the heart of the room to let the messengers of the SBC decide. So there you go. Keybone didn't explain how it could appear likely that Saddleback would do anything given that the decision had just been announced that day and Warren had not yet offered any public comment about how his church would respond. But it was clear that the statement Barber and Wellman had made about Law's amendment and letting the messengers decide was about to go through a spin cycle. So so, so this is so interesting. So you have someone who wants an amendment that's going to clearly delineate what a, what, just apply really, it's going to apply what the Baptist faith and message says and and provide clarity for this issue. You have that, and that's canned. The person who brought it is treated disrespectfully, according to this. And instead, you have a move that allows the issue to come up in a different way. Instead of affirming a standard, it is it is now chock full with personality, reputation, um, platform, you know, the the emotions that come with with all of that. I mean, it's going to be a political theater thing more so. So, so you have that problem. That's muddy. That's not clear. And uh, and then the other thing is, um, it's it, it, the the positioning of this it will actually put those who are for women pastors in an advantageous position because they will be arguing in the affirmative. Whereas before, Mike Law would have been arguing in the affirmative. Let's affirm our statement of faith. Let's affirm the Baptist faith and message. Now, um, it's going to be, let's affirm Saddleback Church. Let's affirm Rick Warren. We don't want to be big meanies, do we? So so it's a strategic, it's a huge strategic difference. Um, and and that's what's happening. Two days after Keybone's post, Barber echoed the sentiment in a long tweet thread that made it clear the decision to disfellowship Saddleback was not one of principle um, made because the executive committee believed the church had violated biblical doctrine, but one of strategy. <laughs> this is actually the most direct mechanism for the messengers to be able to vote on this question. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, to suggest that the committee has usurped the messengers in taking this action misconstrues the spirit of the EC members in making the decision. Almost done, guys. Uh, he pointed out that if the committee had not decided to oust Saddleback, another messenger could have made a motion to disfellowship it again, restarting the process ad infinitum. Barbara made no mention of the fact that there was also an amendment on the table that could put an end to the process in a much clearer and more convictional way. The executive committee kicked Saddleback out of the club, in other words, to force a vote on Saddleback. And that vote would be how the messengers would make their voices heard. The swap was evidenced by Barber's closing remarks in the thread. I promised earlier in the year that I would do all that I could to let the messengers express their will. So Barber's pledge to let the messengers decide, which had been made in the context of Law's amendment, was being retrofitted to Warren's appeal. Um, Sam Webb, however, was not inclined to erase the existence of the amendment. Though he had to ask Barber three times, what his comments meant for law, he did finally get an answer during a testy exchange. Webb posted a link to a news story about the joint statement saying the article below about the amendment says, you are committed to letting these questions come before the messengers. Barber replied that Webb, referring to his initial promise in the context in which uh, had been offered, was the equivalent of demanding law get special treatment in a VIP pass. 
But Barber's response was positively forthright compared to Wellman's, who denied in an email to law that the joint statement had ever been referring to his amendment. Despite the fact that the article about it from the SBC's own house org in the Baptist Press had been titled, Barber Wellman issues statement on proposed constitutional amendment. This is this is so hysterical. This is so SBC. I have to say, this is so SBC. Uh, they're the kings, uh, the people. I saw this even on the seminary level. They're the kings of making the most like hard and fast, vague statements. Like that doesn't make any sense, right? But but that's what they do. They make these statements that are so like uh, they shadow box. I think Russell Moore is like the master at doing this, where he like he'll make a statement about something and you think you know what he's talking about. It's like obvious you know what he's talking about. It's like, well, aren't you talking about, I don't know, like uh, Trump's, well, he probably would go after Trump, so that's maybe not a good example. Um, you know, aren't you talking about what was just uh, what was just said by some Republican official or what was just, uh, what this event that just happened in the news, aren't you talking about that? And he's never talking about that. It's always like something else. He's always referring to something else. It's always, it, it's, it, it's a problem in the SBC. Uh, they're never talking about you. Well, they are behind closed doors, but in public, they're never talking about you. It's, it's, but they're somehow still moving the needle in the wrong direction quite aggressively. And it's amazing that they've managed to do this, to, to move the needle so far in the left, to the left, over and over and over again, when they never take positions on anything. Hey, well, you know, anything concrete. It's always these vague things. Okay, some rank-and-file onlookers seem to have picked up on the state of play and realize that whether women can be pastors in the SBC is likely going to be decided by a popularity contest over Rick Warren. Bingo. Most SBC members uh, busy with their churches and communities likely have no idea, and that's part of the reason that this article is needed. I'm glad Megan wrote it. Uh, let's skip ahead here because this is a long article. Um, yeah, she talks about the uh, Scott McKnight, uh, his uh, petition, which I talked about at the beginning of this. Please sign this letter to support women in the ministry of the SBC. And um, one of the, it talks about some people who signed it. It's actually kind of interesting because it's similar to what she was saying about Rick Warren's church. It's noteworthy that the group that launched the petition, Baptist Women in Ministry, was started by a woman who left the SBC in the 80s. Um, let's see. One of the founders, Molly Marshall, now serves as president of the seminary for the United Church of Christ, the first mainline denomination in the U.S. to endorse gay marriage. And today the group features female Baptist ministers who advocate reproductive justice, abortion, and describe the joy they experience from fully including LGBT brothers and sisters. So it is, it is, it is really, it's heating up. So, so this is actually a very helpful piece because it connects the issue of women pastors to um, the the LGBT normalization issue, and it also exposes Saddleback Church, gives a good example of where this can go. Uh, and it exposes the executive committee and what they're doing. Um, this was a big, th this was very confusing for some people when this all started, like, I think it was a month and a half ago. I was traveling and I did a podcast 
And people, some people were saying, who are more on the conservative side of, in the Southern Baptist Convention, that this was great. This meant the SBC was going in a good direction. There was some celebration immediately. And I was a little bit skeptical. I wanted it to be true, but I was pretty skeptical. I knew about the Mike Law thing. And uh, I, I, I had heard about this amendment, and I was wondering, well, if they're going to disfellowship Saddleback, then why not accept this amendment that states clearly what the rule is? And, you know, now, now, now we know, I think, what's going on. Now we know. And um, I think what I said at the time, as I remember, was that sometimes people like, well, I, I noticed this in the SBC a lot. They'll take like, let's say, five positions and they'll say three of them are conservative that they believe in. And then two of them are on the left and they'll they'll tally it up and they'll say, well, I'm conservative. It, they're really not like for for where they are they're actually more on the left. They're pushing the needle to the left. And those positions they're usually conservative on, they're not They're not really that conservative on. They might be like holistically pro-life. They might be anti-homosexual marriage, but okay with homosexual Christianity, right? They're, they don't really actually uh, believe in the principles or the definitions, but they just don't go as far as some go. And so they'll say they're conservative. They'll frame themselves that way and they get very upset if you say that they're not. And, and, and I suggested that what was going on with this at the time might be an attempt to take an issue that appears to be on the right, to throw it out there to show, look, we're reasonable people, where the rot isn't as bad as you think. We're not liberal here in the SBC. But meanwhile, they're finding creative ways to push the needle left. Um, and that's, I think, exactly what's happened. Okay, lots of comments. Uh, in, why is John whispering? I know I answered this at first. I, I have some company and uh, it's late at night and um, it's my NPR voice. So I thought I could either move the camera <laughs> into another room or which, which I don't really want to do or we can do NPR uh, podcast tonight. So it's NPR podcast. Um, let's see, a lot, a lot of people weighing in. And... Uh, someone asks, Josh uh, Penley, have any possible SBC presidential candidates been announced? If I remember correctly, in the past few years, we already knew the majority of the candidates this close to the annual meeting. And that's true, Josh. That's very true. I have asked this question a number of times over the past few months. And I, I don't think, I don't know. And I don't know if conservatives in the SBC convention even know. They've jump back and forth between a number of different people. And I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Um, I'm just going to be, I guess, blunt. And maybe this will offend some people. But I, I don't know that the conservatives in the SBC, the conservative side, has much of an organization, especially at least compared to the left. The, the, those who have the platforming and the positions have amazing organization to get their people to the convention to put the right people that are going to be toe the party line. I don't see that the conservatives have anything even resembling that. And that's not to discourage the people who are fighting the good fight. I don't want to do that, but that's just the truth. Uh, oh no, Harris auditions for NPR. Isn't that a re <laughs> in revelation? Yeah, this is, if you're a dispensationalist, I guess, right? Hey, by the way, Johnny Cash, squirrel, <laughs> Johnny Cash was a dispensationalist, wasn't he? I was just, I was listening to my, on my iPhone and, uh, uh, my, my music 
app and I put it on shuffle and a Johnny Cash song came on. It's going by the book. And I'm like, huh, Johnny Cash would have been a pre-mill dispy, as some of you covenantal people like to say. Um, anyway, uh, not I should not have brought that topic up. That was a bad idea to bring that up. Now I'm going to get all kinds of uh, questions about eschatology, which I don't want to talk about. Um, uh, I've been reading a little bit on on that lately, but not not really wanting to talk about it in this episode. Um, let's see. Let's let's go here. So, <laughs> you, so you could have a new show, Late Night with John. Yeah, no, no, that it doesn't. I'll be honest. The title, Late Night with John, does not sound like a wholesome, family-friendly show. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Um, all right, let's let's talk about uh, this. This is the reaction to it, and then we're going to land the plane here. But I haven't actually read this thread. I, I skimmed part of it. It's such a long thread, just like the article is long. So I don't even think we'll get through all of it. But Bart Barber weighed in. He weighed in, and he said a response to Megan Basham's long-form published misunderstanding. That's It's always a misunderstanding about the questions regarding the office of pastor in the SBC. He says, Jared Wellman and I wrote, neither the headline nor the article content in the story. Most people working in journalism would suspect this since it is common practice that we would not write the headline or the story. This is significant, uh, significantly important because Basham's allegations repeatedly throughout her article is that we released a statement originally about a constitutional amendment that Mike Law has proposed, but she alleges that we then swapped the meaning of the statement. This is just ridiculous. I'm, I'm, I don't even, we don't have time for this. Um, it, there's really not a lot of substance to this at all. It's just, it's basically how dare Megan, how dare Megan. So Megan responded uh, to this, the idea of the SBC's own news service, Baptist, actually, so she's responding to something John Whitehead said. John Whitehead, who, um, who's very involved in Southern Baptist life, responded to Bart Barber, and he said, uh, you and Jared, speaking about Bart Barber, sit on the governing body of Baptist Press. Rather than pursue a correction months ago, you benefited from the reporter's false assumptions. Only now have you tweeted that Baptist Press misrepresented your real position. Uh, do good managers let misrepresentations persist? And then Megan Basham retweeted that and said, the idea of the SBC's own news service, Baptist Press, which is overseen by the SBC Executive Committee, did not know what the SBC's president and executive committee chairman were making a statement about is so ludicrous. I'm almost impressed by the chutzpah, but I am at least amused. So she, she's having fun. She's, she's, uh, she, she kicked up, uh, she kicked up some bees and they're trying to sting her. And, uh, and Daniel Darling tweeted out, lying is still a sin, even if it's on the internet. Oh, thanks, Daniel Darling. Lying is still a sin, even if it's on the internet. <laughs> oh, this is great. So that is what's happening, uh, in the world of the SBC. Um, I don't, I don't think there's much I want to say other than uh, just a little commentary here that to tie everything together. What's happening in the SBC is not unique to the SBC. It's happening in all kinds of institutions right now. And people are waking up at different times and seeing how bad the corruption is. And 
it's a corruption, I think, by design to some extent. It's managerial elites who haven't really gotten ahead, a lot of them, because of exemplary behavior. They haven't accomplished great things necessarily. Uh, much of the time, it's people who climb the ranks because they had connections. And those connections were formed because they were, um, I saw this in seminary, they were invested in really stroking the ego of the people above them. They were um, they were buttering people up who had positions of authority, and then those people uh, that had authority gave it to the people that they liked because there was a mutual interest there. And I think we've come to the point now where that's gone on for so long that we don't actually have leaders in these upper positions. Joe Biden, Bart Barber, Anthony Fauci. I mean, there's hardly any like real leaders, let alone masculine leaders. I'm just talking about people who are care about the ones that they serve, want to do a good job, pursue excellence, um, willing to sacrifice. That's something of the past. And it's something of the past, even in these Christian circles. And, um, and I say Christian loosely, <laughs> so it's, it's, Incredibly sad for me uh, to see this happening. That said, there are a number of places, it referenced it even in the article, where there are people who see this and who are taking initiative and they're they're going to their own churches. They're forming their own fellowships and uh, new networks are forming. And they're not necessarily based on that same formula. Uh, I'm, I'm writing a book right now. I think I said that at the beginning. And one of the things I want to tackle is this problem of, okay, so how do we, how do we find leaders? I think part of the problem is already starting to correct itself with enrollment in seminaries going down and colleges in general, but seminaries in particular. And the seminaries no longer hold the key to, like they did at least, they still have power, but they no longer hold the exclusive key to of authority in helping a church find a pastor. It used to be when you needed a pastor, you went to the seminary, right? Now, I think there's a new, new connections are being formed. A new paradigm is emerging. And it's not even about going to seminary as much as it is your practical knowledge. Because people have found out after going through a number of seminary grads, these people don't know what they're doing. And so, they're looking for people who can actually lead. And they're also looking for people who line up more with, with them on basic Christian principles, uh, at least for more uh, theologically Orthodox churches. That's what's happening. They're, they're looking for, they don't want someone who's got a degree as much as they want someone who knows what the truth is, what, what the Bible teaches on issues that are being attacked today, like gender and sexuality, and is willing to stand firm. And that's worth its weight in gold now. So having skin in the game, being authentic, I think that's a new paradigm that's emerging. And I would just counsel anyone out there who's going to seminary, who's trying to rise the ranks of leadership in any organization, but in particular in Christian organizations, don't think that it is to your advantage. It, it may be in the short term, but don't think long term it's to your advantage to to do the whole suppressing convictions and ingratiating yourself to power 
so that you can one day get power. I would caution against it. You're, I mean, I'm, I'm an example of this, really, in a way. I mean, I don't want to use myself as an example, but I am one. Would you know my name, those who are listening? Would you know my name if I didn't start talking about these issues and saying there's a problem? You wouldn't. You would have no clue who I am, probably. Well, maybe I'm short-selling myself, but I don't think you would. I'd probably be um, at a church somewhere pastoring right now, or I was, I was thinking of either a chaplaincy, church planning, uh, or teaching. I'd, I'd be in one of these roles. And, and, and they're good, fine roles to be in. Um, and, and I'm you know, not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it, it's because I had skin in the game, because I was willing to sacrifice, because I was willing to forego those things that gained an authenticity in this new paradigm that's emerging, that people saw, this guy must be telling the truth because look at the risk he's taking. He must believe what he says because look at the risk he's taking. Look at, um, you know, look how he doesn't back down from things. That's worth its weight in gold now, way more than the personal relationships and connections that they'll get you so far. Um, but I, I think something's changing. I think something's changing and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Uh, so uh, last but not least, I need to share with you all uh, the sponsor for this podcast. I should have done that at the beginning, but I didn't because uh, I don't know why. <laughs> I just forgot. So the sponsor for this podcast is Covenant Academy, Covenant Academy Online. You can go to covenantacademyonline.com uh, and check it out. It's a, it's a great tool if you're a homeschooler or you're someone who manages curriculum for a Christian school somehow, you're a principal or a teacher. You can use the classes here. There's a number of them at all kinds of different grade levels. And uh, it gives you access to an instructor. You can meet with the instructor twice a week. You can email questions. You get your uh, grades back. You get um, help with 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 that. I mean, that's a big thing for parents, just the grading. Um, and the, here, here's the thing, the kicker. It's free. I mean, there's a suggested contribution, but they're actually not charging, uh, which is amazing to me. So covenantacademyonline.com and uh, check it out. Uh, maybe it's for you if uh, you're someone who homeschools or uh, you have kids that are in a Christian school or something. Maybe, maybe it's a good option. So I think I'm about podcasted out now, uh, NPR'd out, right? I can't do an NPR podcast. Whispering takes it out of me. It's so weird. But uh, I hope that was helpful. Just a little SBC update there. Uh, please pray for me as I'm traveling a lot this week. And I just I want to do a good job with all the filming I'm doing. I'm doing a lot of filming this week. And uh, I really want to bring you some really good projects later in the year. And um, yeah, there, it takes time to get there. But, um, but it's happening. And um, I just appreciate all your support. Uh, God bless. Everyone have a good night. Bye now.